Today we're going to slow down again in John. We do this every now and then. We're just going to take a small chunk. Sometimes in Scripture what you actually see is you see little caveats or, or sidetracks. They seem to be superfluous or a bit of an excess. It's like, why do we need to know that? Uh, but I want, to, I want to suggest to you this morning that they're not. They're not superfluous. They're not an excess. Um, you know, often I think Scripture assumes that something is going on which we're aware of and we already do, but it actually doesn't directly teach about it. Um, you know, in a sense, it can be something that we're, we're doing but not noticing. Uh, it's a bit like an operating system on a smartphone. Uh, aside from the, uh, the tech kind of nerds, when you sit down to use a smartphone, you don't actually sit there thinking about what version of iOS your phone is on. What you think about is you actually think about the apps that you're using and the things that you can actually do with it. You don't actually think about scrolling, right? You just, you just do it. It's just something that happens. And I think today, one of the uh, things that we see in the passage today is we can see a little bit of this kind of operating system by which things run, and it's just a cursory kind of glance to it, and then we move on. Um, so let's have a look at the section of scripture and uh, see, what, uh, see what I'm talking about here. John chapter 2, just three verses today. Uh, John 2 verse 23 to 25. As you find in you remember last week we looked at Jesus clearing the temple. So this is kind of a last little piece of Jesus' time um, when, when he was uh, in Jerusalem clearing The temple, John 2, verse 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in to man. There you go. That's it for today. Here's where we're going. Here's the first point. Uh, Into Jesus, question mark. Now, this is the final note uh, at the conclusion of Jesus' time at the temple, what we've just read in verse 23 to 25. Uh, what we see here is Jesus is doing other signs. Um, and we're not told specifically what those signs are, but the clearing of the temple wasn't the only thing that Jesus was up to when he was there. And like the other signs which we've had already, and in fact we've had a one in particular that John wants us to pay attention to, and that's the turning of the water into wine at Cana in Galilee, Um, you know something happens inside of people who see these signs it stirs something up in them but what you notice here in this text is there's a problem with what the signs have actually stirred up in them Uh, while there's some kind of belief in Jesus it's a problematic belief there's something that's not quite right about it it's deficient in some way now I think you could say this about the people who have seen these signs they are into Jesus, but they're not really into Jesus. <laughs> they're into Jesus, but they're not really into Jesus. You know, they, they, they've seen these signs. They, they believe something about Jesus. They believe what he's proclaiming to be, but there's no personal commitment. It, it doesn't have the feel of John chapter 1 where people are getting after Jesus and they're actually moving and they're doing things and they're bending around him this is more like watching tv isn't it it's like watching the news on your recliner chair at home and you lie there and and you see the news stories come through and you go I believe in that and you're still sitting there 
It doesn't lead to you doing anything. You're still stationary. And I think these people here are dispassionate. They believe who he says he is, but they aren't moved by him. The signs persuade them, but they don't shift them. And I, and I want to just, early on, early on today, I just want to throw a warning out there about this. This is, this is a little nervy to have this kind of thing going on. You know, what we find out in Scripture is that believing solely because of signs, it's dangerous. We see that at the back end of John 4, verse 46 to 49. You know, a man comes down to Jesus and asks him to heal his son. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. Jesus is flagging there that there's a problem with seeing a funky sign and just going, I'm into that, but I'm not really going that much further. Jesus also talks about the same thing in Mark chapter 8. Listen to this. Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. There's a problem when we just want a party trick from Jesus and we want him to persuade us of something. And and I want to suggest to you this morning that this dynamic that's going on here should actually slow us down and lead to a little bit of self-reflection. You see, these people are into Jesus, but they're not really into Jesus. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you into Jesus, but not really into Jesus? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Before we move on, I want to give you a few ways that we can be into Jesus, but not into Jesus. And each of these ways are ways that we see Jesus. Let's uh, kick into it. Here's the first one. We see Jesus as a person who needs to prove himself. What that makes us is it makes us an outside observer. Perhaps this is some of you. You know, you've peered into this stuff about Jesus. And when push comes to shove, you'd kind of be over the line and you'd say, yeah, I think he is who he says he is. I think he did do what the Bible says he did, but you haven't actually bought into it. It doesn't move you to action. You're not engaged. In in its worst form, this kind of approach turns Jesus into some kind of trained monkey who has to do something that we think he should do to persuade us that he's the person he says he is. But I would just ask the question of you, if you're in this category, what would be enough? What would he need to do to prove to you that he is who he says he is? What would be persuasive? You know, if you're... If you're determined not to believe anything, there will be nothing that will be good enough because no proof can make anyone believe something they don't want to believe. You know, I think this is the kind of uh, faith that people in Jesus' time had in John chapter 2. And the scary thing about it is it doesn't count. (laughs) It doesn't count. It doesn't count. As true faith, they were into Jesus, but they weren't actually into Jesus. Number two, fire insurance. Remember when I was uh, in youth, 
remember one time going up to my youth leader and asking him this question. I don't remember the answer, but I remember the question. I went up to him and I said, do you think it's okay to be a Christian because you don't want to go to hell? I wonder what you'd answer. Now, I, I think it's likely part of the process, but I want to say to you, um, I, I don't think it is. Do you know why? Well, who am I into at that point in time? Well, I'm into self-preservation. <laughs> I'm not into Jesus at that point. I'm into self-preservation. Um, now, as I said, this stuff's all in the mix. Scripture puts it in the mix. But when preservation, self-preservation is in the center, you're not into Jesus. I was into Jesus, but I wasn't really into Jesus. Third one, you treat Jesus like a vending machine. It gives you stuff, all right? Vending machine, how does that work? You give the vending machine stuff and it gives you stuff. That's how it works. You put stuff in, money in, you get something out that you want. And this is the way that a lot of people can slip into treating Jesus. It's kind of a religious framework that's about transactions. My relationship with God is a transaction. I give him what he wants, he gives me what I want. And I don't just mean material goods. I also mean peace, forgiveness, freedom from fear. You can just keep rattling them off. You know, if you treat Jesus like a vending machine... It appears as though you're into Jesus, but you're not really into Jesus. Number four, a bat phone. For some, Jesus is the one you call when you're in trouble. That's what you do. He is the break glass in case of emergency. Uh, You are into Jesus big time when you're in trouble. Maybe when bad stuff happens or you're struggling or you need help. Now, I'm not, excuse me. It's weird to be witnessed by, uh, witness drinking by 200 people. Now, look, there's not, there isn't anything wrong with reaching out to Jesus when you need help. The Bible says you should do that. So I'm not discouraging any of that. And I, I'm totally with you. And I think God understands that when you're in pain and when things are really difficult, there's going to be an intensity to your reaching out to Jesus that there isn't at other times. And that's good and that's fine. <clears throat> he tells us to do it. It's all part of it. But the question is, what happens to Jesus when you're outside the crisis? If Jesus just drops away and you're not that interested in him... Um, then your life probably says you're only into Jesus when you need help. Are you into Jesus? Here's the last one. A life coach. This is the person who sees Jesus as someone who can help their life go better. He comes alongside, he's got wisdom, he's got help. They probably see the scriptures as some kind of guidebook to make your life go well. Um, You listen to Jesus so you can have a good life. Um, You see the problem with this one too? It it looks like you're into Jesus, but you're actually more into your life going the way that you want it to go and having a good life. 
it looks like you're into him, but you're actually into yourself. And in a sense, you're into Jesus because you feel like he's into you. That's, that's kind of the essence of it. Here's, um, here's the big problem with all of these. In all of these, you actually don't want him. Now, put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment. How would you feel if people treated you like that? What if you were Jesus and people picked one of those and they interacted with you on that basis? Now, remember, Jesus is God and God is a person. Stuff matters to him. He's not unaffected by people treating him like this and he can, he can see exactly what you're up to. You can't fool him. That's what this scripture says today, that God, Jesus knew what was in man. He knows what's in you. He knows what's in people. He knows what you're up to. If you were Jesus, how would you feel about people treating you like that? You see, Jesus' signs are meant to point to his person. They're not party tricks. They're not things you can just grab to make your life go better. You are meant to see the things that Jesus does and like a sign points to Toowoomba, it's not about the sign, it's about the place that it points to. Now, what's fascinating about this section in John is that obviously people haven't understood the point of the signs. They haven't gotten to the person of Jesus. And what Jesus does next is interesting. Because in the church we talk lots and lots and lots about grace and how God, God gives and gives and gives and God moves toward you and he does do all of those things. But Jesus does something curious now, right? And it kind of breaks our categories a bit. You know what he does? He holds back. Jesus holds back. Have a look at verse 24 in John chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, that's curious, isn't it? Does anyone else think that's curious? You know, is this about Jesus not being gracious and not moving toward people? I I don't think so. I think what you see here in this passage is a very, very normal relational dynamic that takes place. Now, it's supercharged by the fact that it's Jesus and he can see inside of people and he knows their hearts, but it's actually a really, really normal kind of principle that operates in relationships, and this is it. Healthy relationships require two people to give themselves to one another. Healthy relationships require two people to give themselves to one another. Stop for a moment and consider marriage. I'm just picking on marriage because marriage is the, uh, the most personal and intimate of human relationships. In marriage, two people give themselves to each other and promise to care for each other. That's what marriage is. One of the, the well-known phrases which you might have heard in... in um, wedding ceremonies, the vows, I give myself to you completely. You heard that one? I give myself to you completely. 
Now, marriage is kind of the top of the pile in terms of human relationships, in terms of intimacy and being personal, right? But let me just bring it down a couple of notches. You can't do relationship with anyone without giving yourself to them in some way. That's the way that relationships actually work. Now, some of you have been badly hurt in relationships. And I can totally understand it, but you've just gone, that's it? I'm, I'm not going to give myself away. And I think that there are actually times where it's wise to stop giving yourself away to people. If there's a relationship that you're in that is particularly damaging and harmful, there is a wisdom side to it, like Jesus, that would just go, you know what, I'm not going to give you any more of me. That's, that's going to be it. But if you decide because of hurt that's happened in your life that you're going to completely shut down relationships everywhere across your life, that would be really sad. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about it in Mere Christianity, about what that would do to you. Here's, here's the bottom line. If you want to play it safe, if you want to avoid getting hurt, don't do a relationship with anyone. <laughs> True? Uh, fallen world, sinners. Here's, here's my word to you this morning. If you do a relationship with any sinner, you will definitely get hurt. I can guarantee it. Why? Because you have to give yourself, at least a part of yourself, when you do relationship. You have to give it to the other person. Relationships require that you're vulnerable. Now, some of you have heard me say this before, and you're probably sick of me saying it, but I'm just going to keep saying it because I think it's important. Uh, Relationships are an uncontrolled space. You, you You give yourself, and by definition, the moment that you give yourself to someone else... You're not in control anymore. If you are in control, it's a twisted relationship. So you you kind of put yourself out there and it's in an uncontrolled space. If you want to keep things controlled, then don't go giving yourself to other people in relationships. And then you won't have relationship and then you'll end up like a sun-dried tomato. You will. Well, what's this giving of yourself? Now, it's worth just noting here. Uh, Anyone who's married or has been married knows that the wedding day, you give yourself to the other person and then what happens after that? A whole bunch of giving of yourself. (laughs) Because you haven't given all of yourself to them, even though you've committed to giving yourself to them, you haven't actually given all of yourself to them. And so what's the process of getting married? You've got the, the wedding day and then you've got the marriage. And the marriage is husband and wife giving themselves progressively to each other in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. Well, that's the plan anyway. Now, what does that actually look like? Well, I'm going I'm to show you a couple of pictures that... Um, some of you have seen before, and this is another thing that you'll, uh, you'll see reasonably regularly, especially if you do restoration groups. Uh, you'll probably see this popping up. Um, these 
what you see on the screen there is, uh, is, is an image of the way that relationship works. And I'm working toward explaining for you what I think is happening with, uh, with Jesus in John chapter 2. All right? You've got a person who is a white mug and a person who is a red or orange mug. And uh, some people who know me well are not lost on the fact that these are both coffee mugs. Okay? Because I, uh, I like a good brew. But here's, here's what you've got in the middle is you've got uh, the clear glass is relationship, okay? Now, if, if the person on either side are actually determined they're, they're not going to give of themselves, they're not going to give to the other person, you've got no relationship, okay? You've got no relationship at all, okay? But what normally happens in a relationship is everything that makes you, you, if you have a look at the writing that's on each of those cups, everything that makes you, you, most of what makes you who you are is actually invisible. So the process of giving yourself to someone else is about taking those things that are invisible that the other person can't see and giving them to the other person. So what you might actually have in a relationship, and this is typically how it works, is that one person goes first and they decide that they're going to give a little bit of themselves to the other person. They're going to be personal with the other person. They're going to allow the other person to get to know them a little bit. That's what they're going to do. Now, I don't have time to argue it, but I have actually argued this in writing like across the whole of Scripture. I think this is the way that God works. This is the way that he's made us to work. We go public with a bit, all right, with the other person. And then, you know what happens? They go public with a bit of them. This is, this is the, uh, the scriptural categories in the Bible of knowing and being known. You're actually giving yourself to the other person and then they're giving themselves to you. But here's the catch. You actually don't have relationship yet because everyone knows that there's some situations that you've been in where someone knows something about you and you know something about them but you're actually not doing any relationship with them. You don't like each other. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, they've got some intel on you and you've got some intel on them and it's knowing and being known but it's not actually a relationship yet. And the reason why it's not a relationship is because what mixes up us giving ourselves to each other, the knowing and being known, is all these relational loving activities that Scripture talks about like love, forgiveness, gentleness, compassion, being merciful, celebrating, speaking truth in love, bearing burdens, patience... So this, this process of relationship is that I open myself up and I be vulnerable and I, I let you see something about me and then the other person does it and then we move toward each other and we love each other and what you have at the end of that is relationship. Is this making any sense? Now, <laughs> what, what's going on with Jesus? Well... Jesus gets the white cup because he's perfect, right? What has Jesus done? He's done some signs and he's let them see who he is. And you know what they've done? That's nice. We like that. And they haven't opened themselves up to him. Certainly not like we saw in uh, the back end of uh, John chapter 1. It didn't turn into commitment. They didn't move toward him. They stayed where they were. They didn't put anything on the line. They didn't give themselves to him. And so what did Jesus do? He stopped. He stopped. 
didn't leave them without revelation, didn't leave them without understanding, but he stopped giving himself to them. Now, some of us have had the experience of being in lopsided relationships and we think, I think erroneously, that you can give yourself and the job and the right thing to do is always to give, give and give and give when the other person never gives anything. And we end up with a whole bunch of white stuff in the jar or red stuff in the jar and the other person never gives anything. And I want to suggest to you today that I I don't think that's wisdom in relationships. Relationships are not one-sided like that. Jesus pulled up. He didn't entrust himself to them. Relationship didn't form between him and them because they didn't give themselves to him. So what happened? It stopped. That's what happened. And I'll tell you something, this, every relationship stops. Even if one person is committed to keeping on giving, 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 the relationship still has stopped because the other person's never actually given themselves in relationship. Now, some of you might go, Pete, it's three verses, mate. I think you're overreaching a bit. This is ridiculous, right? And I would love to have a conversation with you later if you think that because I actually would love to argue it across the whole of the Scriptures, but I'll just give you a couple of things from the book of John, right? And if you've got your Bibles open, it would be good for you to see these because you'll see this dynamic in action. Go to John chapter 10, verse 15. talks about Jesus, the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So if you're one of his people, if you're one of his sheep, he gives himself to you. You're in relationship with him and he gives himself to you. Go to John 15, verse 14 to 15. John 15, verse 14 to 15. This is where Jesus is talking about friendship and he talks about opening up to each other. John 15 verse 14 to 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Listen to this. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. (laughs) What's he doing? Well, he tells his friends about him. He tells his friends about God. He opens up to them. I mean, if you start looking through Scripture, you're going to find little bits of this all over the place. Psalm 25 verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Another translation of this verse says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. What's it saying? Well, If you're in relationship with God and you love him and you respect him, he tells you more about himself. He shares more about who he is. Proverbs 3 verse 32. The devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. (laughs) You get the inside word. If you're in relationship with God, you get the inside word. We could just go on and on. We could get into, I think, Philippians where... Paul talks, he cries out about wanting to know God 
And it's like, aren't you already saved? It's like, yeah, Paul, Paul was, but Paul's reaching for this deeper knowledge of God and Christ and his sufferings. Anyway, that's all we've got time for on that bit today. If you've got any questions, I'd love to have a chat with you afterwards. Here's a big idea. What went on there with Jesus is the people did not move toward him. And so he didn't entrust himself to them. Here's where I, uh, I want to finish this morning. Jesus is careful with you. Just want to read verse 24 and 25 again. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let me tell you something about our society. Our society is filled with information. The age-old fear that people had was Big Brother's going to come in and Big Brother's going to tighten up all the information and you're not going to be able to know all the things that you, that you want to know or that you need to know. Now we've got an abundance of information. Too much. We're big consumers of information. You know, information gives us power, right? And we leverage it whenever and wherever we can. You know, in recent times there's been... Uh, more and more attention being given to uh, the issue of personal privacy and personal information. You know, there's been so many news articles over the last couple of weeks about the latest iPhone update which stops Facebook and other companies from tracking you when you don't want them to track you and getting this information about you. And it's causing a real stink around the place. You know, as, as, as we move further and further along in this information-rich world, we're becoming more and more aware of the importance of our own information. There's identity theft. There's a, there's a misuse of who we are. So, I wonder, when you read about Jesus' all-pervasive knowledge of you, what do you think? How do you feel about it? Well... The answer to most of the questions I ask, uh, just as a tip if you're new, is it depends. Because it does depend. And, and people's knowledge of information, it, it always depends. What does it depend upon? Well, it depends upon what they do with it. That's what it depends upon. Anyone who can remember growing up as a child with brothers and sisters know the importance of information and what people do with it. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I remember as a kid, this was like one of my big sins. As a kid, there was one day I said bull, like a swear word, right? It's not even in my swear word categories right now. But it was back then, right? Tight kind of preacher's kid's family and, and the only son says bull. And what does this son's um, three sisters say? Well, they just start crowing about, oh, that's a swear word. We're going to go and tell mum and dad that you said Bull. At that point, their knowledge of me is very dangerous for me. You know, when people know things about you, what they do with the information is critical. So you need to know that God knows everything about you. Like everything. Now, there is never a moment where you can sneak something in and he doesn't know about it. You can think that. You can just go, I'm just going to sneak this one in. He's not gonna, if I do it really quick, he's not going to notice. No, he, he knows everything about you. Well, 
What does he do with this knowledge about you? I want to say something to you. I don't think God ever gets in your space. I don't think God ever gets in your personal space. You go right back to the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. You know, Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They've done the thing that he said not to do. Did God know where they were hiding? He did. Did he know what they'd done? Could he have stormed in there like a drill sergeant, pulled the branch back and just pointed at them and given them a gobful? Could he? Totally. And you know what? He would have been justified in doing that. He's the only person who would be justified in doing it like that. How does he do it? He asks a question. (laughs) He says, Adam, where are you? Now that seems to me to be an incredibly gentle way to go about it. When you look at the unfolding evil and pain and everything that flowed out of that moment, would that not have been the perfect moment for God to fly off his handle and get in their space? What does he do? Well, this is something you'll find with God regularly. He deals with the condition and then works backwards to the cause. Our tendency is to deal with the cause and work to the condition. He starts with the condition and he works back to the cause. And one of the ways that he actually does things, one of the ways that he handles the information he has about us so frequently is, is questioning, appealing. Yeah, there'll be some hard prophecies out there about people, but even in the hard prophecies he doesn't get in their space. Now, some of you might go, well, what about Saul? Like Saul got knocked off his horse for persecuting Christians. Do you know what the first thing is that God said to, says to him? That Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He leads with the question again. This is a guy who's a Christian killer. He loves it. He's passionate about it. You can see it with Jesus here, right? He does not go and get in their space and go, you buffheads. Right? You got no clue. You got no clue about who I am. You're doing the wrong thing. He just goes, right up. I'm taking half a step back. We're not going any further in this because you're not responding rightly. You can't open the petals of a rose with your fingers. It has to open on its own. God does tell you the truth. He does tell you what is happening for you. He will always tell you what you need to know. And he will sometimes say some hard things to you. But he will never coerce you. He will never manipulate you. It may feel like there's some pressure because some of the consequences he's telling you about, but he doesn't pressure people and he doesn't control people. If he was that kind of God, when he was dying on the cross, it would have been a completely different story, wouldn't it? There is a lightness to his conversation with the thief on the cross, isn't there? Even though it's the most gritty and dark and intense time. The thief on the cross says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today 
you'll be with me in paradise. He's not beating him over the head for being a sinner, even though he is. He's not getting in his space as he's dying on a cross. Even the process of coming to faith, and I I don't want to crack this one open uh, because we could be here for a while, but even the process of coming to faith, God's grace comes to us and it works in our will so that we desire what is good. It doesn't overpower us. You know, you, you can choose to go away. If you don't know Jesus today, you can choose to not buy into Jesus. You can choose to not be into him. And he will give you the space to make that choice to your own destruction. It isn't what he wants, but you can have it if you want it. Folks, God uses his knowledge of people to help them, not to harm them. He uses it in order to provide a target for the heat-seeking missile of his goodness and his grace in our lives. And what we're actually going to find is that this is the bridge between the clearing of the temple that John's making and the changing of Nicodemus's heart, which we're going to look at next week. I'm done. Uh, but what I want to do, what I want to do is just provide, invite the music team to come up, but I just want to provide you a minute for some uh, reflection. Um, let me go back. Can you just take a moment um, to uh, just pray? I invite you to close your eyes and um, pray, pray this. Reflect on this. Are you into Jesus but not really into Jesus? Maybe it's like, yeah, no, I really was into him last week. <laughs> but something has switched in the last week. So maybe this is not a whole of life kind of thing, but it's a um, it's a this week thing. Lost your gaze a bit. Just take a minute and pray about that. Um, let me encourage you. He he wants to hear from you. He wants you to treat him like a person. So if you've done that, you should just say sorry to him and ask him to forgive you. And and then in a moment we'll see. I wonder if you'd stand with me. I want to pray and and then we'll sing. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I pray for um, for anyone this morning that um, even right now isn't isn't drawn to you. Would you help them to see your goodness? Would you help them to see who you are? 
But I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. They've, they've never been into you. I pray that even, even right now that they would abandon life their way. That they would be uh, willing to see the death of all the other things that they're into other than, other than you. God, for those of us who know you, those who are close to you this morning, who just who really love you and enjoy you, God, would you stoke those fires up even more? Would you reward them with more secrets? You tell them more about you. Let them in deeper. For those who today maybe just even feel a little bit caught out, So last week was a good week, but not so much this week. God, I just pray for some really natural, just apology, repentance, sorry. God, that they'd reach out to you for forgiveness and cleansing and, and, and hunger again for the depth of who you are. Amen.